Well, hey, everybody. Man, it is so good to be back here with you. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Adam. I'm one of the ASM interns here at Alderwood. In addition to that, I'm also a sophomore at UW. I'm hoping to get into business school. And, you know, something came up that was really interesting to me. I'm in one of my classes that I have to take for business school, I have to take this business law class. And the other day, we looked at this case study involving this one car called the Ford Pinto. And so there's this car that came out back in the 1970s, and it was really dangerous to drive because there's a high likelihood that it would just explode if you got rear-ended. The way that they did the, the gas chamber in the back, it was super dangerous. And so Ford had a choice to make. They could either recall the car, fix it, and spend a bunch of money, or they could just send it out. And to make that decision, they had to figure out how much a person was worth. And Ford estimated a person at this time when they were trying to economically figure out this problem, Ford estimated a person to be worth 200 grand. And I don't know about you guys, but that price seems pretty low. I mean, if you think about how much a house is worth here in Linwood, it's like four times that amount. And it raised this interesting question. How much is a person worth? I mean, how can you really measure what a person is worth? I mean, think about your own self-worth. We have a lot of different ways of trying to measure that. And when I say that, think of the things that shape your own perception of yourself or of other people. Maybe you place your worth in what your friends think of you or like how much they enjoy hanging out with you. Maybe you view your own worth from your test scores in school and you put a lot of pressure on yourself there. Maybe you define your worth by what your parents think of you. And the truth is, all of us are asking that one unique question. All of us really want to know just how much we're worth, why we've been created, and if we're valued or not. And there's a big, big reason for that. That is the way that we've been engineered. We were created with this desire to find our meaning or our worth in something. But here's the thing. There's only one area of value. There's only one measure that really matters, and that's our worth to God. So the question we're going to be answering today is this, what am I worth to God? And if we can answer that question, we can start to view ourselves and the people around us in the way that God really intended us to. So our big idea is hopefully going to start to answer that. It's this, Christ frees us from slavery and adopts us as family. And we're going to be looking at a passage in Galatians where Paul is going to lay out how we were once slaves to our own sin, but because of the coming of Jesus, our identities and worth are both redeemed through faith to something greater. And I'll tell you right now, you were worth a lot to God. So I'm going to pray, and we're going to hop into our passage here today. God, thank you so much for just giving us your word, for giving us life through your spirit and your sacrifice. God, I pray that we would learn from your word, that we would desire to apply it to our lives, that we would want to get to know you more. Lord, that we would better understand our purpose here on earth and why you created us the way that you did. And in Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, so let's start off. Let's look at Galatians 3, 23 through 25. We've got it up here. Here we go. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. Now the law was our guardian until Christ came so that we may be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So if you've been tracking along with us here in Galatians, we've been talking a lot about this law 
and how the Judaizers had come through and led a bunch of people astray through it. But what I want to do is this. The law has been getting a pretty bad rep over the past few weeks, and I want to correct some misperceptions on why the law even exists in the first place and why God intended it to be the way it was. So man, picture this. Imagine your friend hits you up. It's Saturday. It's a weekend. Both of you are free. He's like, man, hey, let's hang out. Meet at my place. We can go from there. Just I'll send you the address. And I'm like, oh, okay, absolutely. Sounds great. Send the address. I'll be there. Your friend sends you the address, the place where he's supposed to be. Now, here's the thing. How do you know how to get from where you're at to that address? How do you know? You wouldn't unless you had a map. If you're directionally challenged like me, you're going to need a way to get there, a way to figure that out and to help you do that. I don't know about you guys, but I have no idea where I'm going if I didn't have Google Maps with me. I mean, it shows me when I'm going the right way, when I take a wrong turn. It shows me how to go on the correct path, and it shows me how to correct myself when I slip up. And when we think about the law that God gives, that was the original intention. God told his people, hey, follow me, and then gave them a law or a map of how to do it. The map showed them how often they got lost, too, leading us to our first point in our passage. The law points us to faith through our faults. And Paul talks about how the law does two really, really important things in this passage. And both of those things point to faith in Jesus Christ. First, let's look at verse 23. We were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. And so when this passage is saying that we were held in custody under the law, that we are imprisoned by the law, here's what Paul is saying. All that the law is doing is showing us how broken and sinful we really are. We wouldn't know if we were lost or not without knowing what lost really meant. In fact, Paul writes about this in his, petter, in his letter to Romans in the middle of breaking down a similar misconception of the law. Let's read it together. Romans 7 verses 6 through 7 say this. By dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the spirit, not in the old way of the written code. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So the nature of the law itself isn't bad. It's our own nature that the law points out. And it reminds us of our need for something greater, something else, in the help of the form of Jesus. The second thing we come to is this. The law was our picture of God until Jesus came. It was a reflection of God's heart, his desire to protect us from sin and to point out all the bad stuff and sin that's in our lives. And you can think of the law, just bear with me here, like Master Uguay from Kung Fu Panda. I love this movie. I, it's a guilty pleasure. I think it's hilarious. But in this movie, right, Poe was first learning Kung Fu through Master Uguay. And Uguay, he was his master when he was young in his knowledge. And he taught Poe, but when the time came, as we can see here, Uguay had to leave. His time was up. He, was, he had fulfilled his purpose. And Poe was then uh, taught under Master Shifu. That was his new guardian. Both masters were good. They were wise. They had great intentions for Poe. But change was necessary in his journey. And, you know, that's how the law works when Paul uses the word guardian. 
it stood in the place of Jesus as our way to view God until we got the complete image of God as a man through Jesus. We were once slaves to our own sin. We were once, you know, under the law. And now that we get to see God's character through the person of Jesus, now that Jesus has come to justify us through belief in him, we are set free from our own sinful desires that once characterized us. And it leads us right into our next point here, because we're going to be talking about this new identity that we've been given because of Christ's sacrifice and because of the faith that we have in him. We are family in Christ when we follow him. And this might be, we're, we're looking at some of the most important verses in the book of Galatians here. So let's focus in on verses 26 through 29. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now, I want you guys to realize how huge of a statement was this was for Paul's audience. For one, your own family lineage was incredibly important in Jewish tradition. The people you were directly related to totally defined your worth. And the expectation of preserving your family across generations was huge for the tribes of Israel. I mean, if you were born into an impoverished family or if you were born under a certain ethnicity, you were looked upon very differently than those higher up. And there wasn't really a lot of room to get up there. Additionally, if you've been following along with us in this series, we've learned that this church in Galatia that Paul is writing to was relying on following the law perfectly as their way to become children of God instead of just putting their trust in Christ through faith. And in that endeavor, here's what happened. They were excluding Gentiles from their dinner tables because they weren't conforming to Jewish traditions. And man, Paul is worked up about it. But ultimately, he says something very interesting here in this set of verses. He essentially says this, man, you guys are totally missing where your real identity is. See, the Jews in the city of Galatia had held their backgrounds and their identities in their backgrounds above this faith that they had in Christ. And you know, it reminds me of one of the most pivotal experiences in my faith that really grew me and shaped me uh, to where I'm at now. I remember I was at a summer camp back in eighth grade with one of my best friends, Isaac. And we, it was an all-guys group session. We were all hanging out. And the pastor was going around. And he would go to every guy, and he would just ask this question. He would ask, who are you? Who are you? And every guy would, you know, have a different answer. You know, they would say their name. They would say, you know, I'm 18. I go to school here. And he would just kind of nod and go to the next person. And he kept doing that for about 10 minutes until he got to my friend Isaac. And when he asked Isaac, he said, Isaac, who are you? And Isaac said, I'm a Christian. And that has stuck with me to this day because Isaac identified as a follower of Jesus before anything else in his life, before his own name, before his own gender, his age, his school, anything. I, you know, I'm, I'm reminded of John in the, in the book of John when he writes that, um, he identifies as the disciple that Jesus loves. He is placing his identity and holding his authority, the authority of his identity in Jesus above every other area of his life. And man, nothing is more important than the worth that we've been given as children of God. 
When Paul says, put on God, it's as if you're wearing him as a jersey to identify yourself with him above everything else. And man, when that happens, we start to really understand the equal worth that we have in the eyes of God. Our achievements, our families, even our genders hold no weight to our true value because God has put us all on the same playing field. And man, not only that, not only, and because of that equal value, we have inherent unity as followers of Jesus. Think for a moment about all the things that typically identify people. And I'm sure you're wondering why this slide has been up for so long. We'll get to it. You know, it could be sports. It could be literal family because you live together. Think of the things that really bring people together. When I was in middle school and high school, I had this group of friends that I'd played soccer with. And, you know, one of the best ways we stayed connected was through playing video games together. We were all very different people. We came from different families. We held different beliefs. We all played different sports eventually. But all of us were unified around this one thing for years, and specifically this game. All of us could get together after school and do this together. And, you know, we still find time to do that together now. And if we didn't have this video game, there's probably no way that we'd naturally be friends or spend time together. But here's the thing. The faith that we have in Christ unites us on a level above a simple interest such as a video game. And I know this is crazy, but what if I told you that right now at ASM, the people following God around you are as much as your family as your actual parents and siblings are, if not more so. Isn't that crazy? When Paul says we are one, he means it. You know, there's no room for excluding someone from the body of Christ, pardon me, for any reason, whether it's race, whether it's what they do or who they choose to be, we are all one in Christ Jesus. And we're gonna finish out with chapter four today. We're gonna be looking at the first set of verses and just going through most of it. But we're gonna be talking about how God's promise redeems our identity and gives us new worth. So let's start off in verses one through three here. What I'm saying is that as long as an heir is underage, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. So I know this is a very dense passage. There's a lot going on here and there's a lot that's kind of confusing. So let's first address some of the elephants in the room. Why is Paul talking about slaves and heirs? Well, let's, let's look at that. Think about what an heir is. Think about an heir to a throne in royalty. An heir inherits the throne from the king or the queen, but that doesn't happen when they're still young. They've got this royal status, but more importantly, they receive something from someone else in time. So they're royalty, and they also receive something else. On the other hand, Paul talks about a slave. And in Paul's time, a slave was typically someone who owed a debt to somebody else, and they were working it off for most of their life to work off that debt that they had. They had no inheritance. They had no royal status, and they were kept in captivity by someone, or in this passage, something. Here's the reason why this slide is up there. Because that word, the elemental spiritual forces of the world, really jumps out at you, doesn't it? It's kind of weird. There's a, it's a really weird statement that needs to be addressed. And according to Paul, we, without God, we are slaves to this elemental spiritual force. And, you know, if that doesn't confuse you at first, props to you. You're a lot smarter than me. Because when I first read that, when I first read this passage, I thought of like Avatar and guys like shooting fire out of their hands and controlling water. And as cool as that would be, as cool as that could be happening in Galatia, uh, 
that's actually not the case. That doesn't actually happen. If we look at the Greek word for elemental spiritual forces, we find the word stoikeion, stoikeion, which refers to this idea of a progression. Think of it like the ABCs of the world, elementary knowledge. So if you think about it like this, without God, if you looked at the world and tried to figure it out, you'd have a pretty hard time. And you'd eventually become pretty discouraged because not everything really adds up. We live under this idea that we get what we deserve. When we are good, we deserve to receive good. And when we are bad, we deserve to receive bad. That's an idea of cause and effect. And that's the logical progression of what we can see and understand. But we find that that doesn't actually happen when we put our trust in Jesus. And it doesn't actually happen in the world either. Bad people get good things. Good people get bad things all the time. But with, with Jesus, here's what we kind of understand. While we sin and deserve punishment for that sin, God has provided us grace through faith, breaking that idea of elementary knowledge that once bound us in slavery because we put our trust in him. So essentially, with God, the bad people actually get good things. The sinful people are saved through grace because we've been given that through Christ's sacrifice. Not only do we inherit inherit the kingdom of God through this new identity that Jesus offers us, God promises to send his spirit into our hearts. And that's what it's talking about in the later verses of this passage. So when we become the sons and daughters of God, we get this new spirit that cries, Abba, Father, this new spirit that redeems those old desires and those old ways of thinking with a desire to know God more. And friends, that is the new spirit that defines our true worth and brings us true life through Christ. And I want to finish out with this. Do you believe that? Is your perception of yourself really coming from God or are you still trying to figure things out on your own? Hopefully this passage and this message has helped you understand those questions for yourself. And if it hasn't, I'd really urge you to keep asking those questions about how you view your identity and how you view your relationship with God. And I've got some questions on the screen that you can be thinking about, but with all that being said, I'd like to pray. So let's do that together. God, thank you so much for this passage. Thank you so much for the unity that we have through your spirit. God, that inherent sense of worth and just the fact that we are all sons and daughters of you. God, I pray that we would not try to live up to any expectations, God, because we are enough Lord, your grace is sufficient for our sins. We are saved by grace and through faith. And it's through your spirit that we get our new desires, that we receive this new life. Lord, I pray that we'd lean into that, that we would understand where our, our true identity really is and that we would not try to misplace it. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, thank you guys so much. Hope to see you soon. Take care.